Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at commonwealthclub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. For decades, U.S. presidents from both political parties have pledged to reduce America's dependence on foreign oil. And yet today, imports are about 25% higher than previous peak 30 years ago. Is climate change a game changer when it comes to oil imports? What does the U.S. military think about the connection between petroleum and international security? What's being done to bring renewable fuels and energy efficiency into the U.S. armed forces? Here to discuss those questions and much more is retired Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn, former commander of the United States Navy's Third Fleet. Please give him a warm Commonwealth Club welcome. Admiral, welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be with you. Good to have you. Uh, you were part of a group of military officers who studied America's relationship with uh, the relationship between energy and national security. Can you tell us what that group, who was in that group, and what did they conclude? Sure. Uh, it's the uh, CNA Military Advisory Board, Greg. And CNA is a uh, very uh, highly regarded uh, think tank in Washington, it used to be the Center for Naval Analysis put together about uh, four years ago a group of a dozen retired three- and four-star generals and admirals from all of the four services to take a look uh, at that time at climate change and national security. And uh, we put out a report in April of 2007 that was somewhat groundbreaking in that the title kind of gives it away, Climate Change and the Threat to National Security. It was groundbreaking in that uh, a lot of folks said, well, what are a bunch of uh, retired admirals and generals, national security specialists, talking about climate change, which had previously been the purview of, uh, shall we say, environmentalists and those who would oppose environmental uh, laws? Mm -hmm. And the uh, key conclusion in the report uh, of April of 2007 was that climate change acts as a threat multiplier for instability in critical regions of the world. And further that climate change, energy security, and national security are inextricably linked. And so spin that out for us a little bit. You know, how does the uh, foreign or the dependence on oil, how does it th affect U.S. security? I think it basically is a nation that consumes 25% of the oil produced every year but controls in the United States less than 3% of the known reserves 
is an unsustainable position for us economically, militarily, and diplomatically. A couple of manifestations of that. First of all, economically, in 2008, we shipped over $386 billion out of our economy simply to pay for our addiction to oil. That's over a billion dollars a day, and we could list uh, hundreds of programs that we could spend a billion dollars a day on right here in the United States. And further, in looking at this economic recession that we're hopefully starting to come out of all too slowly, we need to be uh, aware of the fact that a big part of that was because of the shipping out of all of that money over the years and our growing dependence on uh, oil that's imported to this country. So the same could have been true, maybe slightly less magnitude, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So, so why now? Why, why did this, was it the prospect of climate change that sort of was the, the tipping point in this uh, awareness about the relationship with oil? They came together uh, in this inextricable link, I think, uh, due to a couple of factors. 2008 was a very bad year for oil prices, oil volatility. It followed by three years the first spike above $3 a gallon that, that we had seen in this country is in the wake of Katrina and how that uh, hurricane uh, that came ashore as a Category 3 hit the oil infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico and spiked oil above $3 a gallon, and it actually caused spot outages around various parts of the country. The first time people couldn't get gas where and when they wanted to since the 1970s oil embargo. So that was kind of an awareness on the part of the American people that what's going on with, uh, with oil and do I need to be worried about this? The, it was a price wake-up call. Secondly, there was increasing uh, good scientific knowledge that was coming out in the forms of these IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm-hmm. that made us more and more aware that something was going on on our globe and that we needed to be concerned about it. From a military advisory board perspective, we said we're not climate scientists, and certainly some of the arguments for and against uh, the science uh, are almost uh, theological in their their dimensions. And we said, look, you never have 100% certainty about anything. And if you wait for 100% certainty on the battlefield, Mm -hmm. something bad is going to happen. So let's take some prudent actions to deal with the effects of climate change, drought, too much uh, water in some places because of torrential rains or, or uh, typhoons or monsoons, uh, not enough water, multi-year droughts that cause crop failures or fishery failures, and the effect that they have on people, large populations, literally measured in the millions, that could be displaced across existing borders because they become environmental refugees. Now, this was, you said this report came out in 2007. Yes. M- the mid of 2007? April of 2007. That was actually before the IPCC fourth assessment report that's been in the news a lot lately. So right. you were basing, you, this group of uh, military brass, were right. basing this on pre- previous scientific assessments. Exactly. And a lot of that was uh, from the National Academy of Science uh, right here in the United States. Uh, some assessments that had been done by the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, for example, and it was uh, all focused on the effects that climate could have on populations and the instability that that could create. A good example of that is around the world in critical regions, we have what I would describe as fragile governments. You add to those fragile governments and fragile societies the stresses that can be caused by the effects of climate change and you have a recipe for a fragile government becoming a failed government, 
creating a vacuum of power into which you're going to have uh, paramilitaries emerge, organized crime, extremists, and terrorism, uh, much as we have seen in the past in Afghanistan and in Somalia. I want to come back to failed states, and I know um, you have some thoughts on those, but was this controversial at all in terms of these group of military advisors? Was it a consensus-based process where you all looked at the data the same way and said, yes, this is a threat? It was consensus-based, and I would say that everybody came to the, uh, the question, if you will, what is the relationship, if any, between climate change and national security, with a pretty open mind, but, you know, we all have our, uh, our pers- perspectives, if you will, but the report does reflect the consensus of the group, and the uh, consensus was unambiguous, that there's a definite link between our national security and climate change. So you produce this report and you take it to the Pentagon and say, here it is, and then what happened? Well, we we weren't really working for the Pentagon per se. Certainly there was a great deal of interest in the Pentagon that uh, a group of uh, retired admirals and generals with, I think collectively we had over 400 uh, years of of service in military, measured in centuries, Uh uh, and uh, basically uh, uh, it it caused some, uh, some interesting things to happen. Probably it had the biggest effect on Capitol Hill. That was reflected in uh, things like the uh, Warner-Lieberman amendment Mm -hmm. or or law that was uh, proposed as a bill to uh, address climate change. It was the first bill in the Senate's history related to climate change that had ever made it to the Senate floor. Significantly also... Uh, Senator, former Senator John Warner, f- uh, former ranking minority of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, k- tied up with uh, another senator at the time, Hillary Clinton, and put language into the fiscal year 08 Defense Authorization Act that directed the Department of Defense to take a look at climate change and energy security in their quadrennial defense review, which was just released last month. And that came out in, uh, yeah, in February of this year. And right. what's the significance of that? It mentions climate change as a security issue and requires right. the Pentagon to do some things about facilities and operations. But tell us what that means. Basically, uh, for the first time, the Pentagon, in a very significant document, this Quadrennial Defense Review Report, which is a report from the Secretary of Defense to the Congress, is serious about taking a look at what the effect on installations, roles, and missions for the United States Armed Services that climate change will have, and what uh, the United States Department of Defense has to do about uh, energy security going forward. The interesting thing is, uh, as important as the product of the report is, the process that, uh, uh, that made that report happen is really, really significant in that all of the services, all of the defense agencies participate in some way, and it caused a lot of serious discussions and awareness really to grow in the uh, United States national security uh, organizations that uh, this is really a, a serious thing and we need to uh, treat it as such in a, by taking prudent measures. And are there people in the, the intelligence community, the national security community, who say that as happens on Capitol Hill, this is all overblown, question whether climate change is even happening or is human-caused? No, I don't, uh, I don't hear those conversations. Of course, when the Secretary of Defense and the uh, Chairman of the, Arms, uh, or the uh, Joint Staff says, we think this is a serious problem, it tends to filter down in a, in a rather uh, rapid way. But I think uh, specifically to the intelligence community, the National Intelligence Council put out a 2025 report 
that uh, says a lot about climate change and the effect on, uh, potential effect on stability and national security. Additionally, uh, the, uh, the CIA just established less than a year ago mm-hmm. a center to do analysis specifically related to uh, climate change and how it might affect the uh, various uh, aspects of uh, stability in regions of the world important to the United States. Uh, Leon Panetta was here a few months ago and, and mentioned that. Um, so where do you think the biggest threats will come from uh, regionally or what types of threats will be most uh, urgent for the United States in a changing climate world? I think that this goes to the, the question is a, is a good one, and it goes to the heart of why it's so difficult to get our minds around this whole thing of climate change, whether from a national security perspective or an economic perspective, and probably why this seems to be so politically controversial. It's very complex. It is very, very uh, indefinite in terms of the, exactly where is the water going to rise and how much and, and when is that going to happen. The nature of climate science is that they deal with probabilities. They have developed some very sophisticated models of climate that uh, are getting better all of the time. They're pretty good, though, right now. They are certainly good enough for, ours to listen, for us to listen to the science and to take uh, actions which will help to either prevent, mitigate, or adapt to the effects of climate change. That's interesting because a lot of times in the popular press, climate models are assailed as being theoretical or or flawed or complex, which I think a lot of scientists would admit they are. But military planners think that they're good enough to do some scenario planning for futures? Absolutely. Uh, It's that uh, we'd never have 100% certainty. Those models will never be 100% certain. And we just need to uh, look at the trend lines, uh, take a look at the indicators and warnings, and do something to prevent, mitigate, and adapt. Further, I'd like to share a a perspective that was uh, given to me by the Navy's uh, chief oceanographer, uh, two-star Admiral Dave Titley, and uh, he describes it this way. He says, you know, a lot of people say, how can we know what's going on with the climate? We can't even tell what the weather is going to be tomorrow or next week. And he said, imagine yourself standing on the shore, and you're looking at all of the waves come in. They come in frequently. Some are bigger than others. Some break earlier than others. Uh, some the frequency of the waves is different. That is the weather. That's short term. But climate is the tide. We can look at tide tables right now and tell you 20 years from now when uh, the tide is going to rise uh, down at uh, Pier 39. Yeah, they, 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 climatologists often talk in terms of decades. They, they need long term to, exactly. to do those sorts of things. Um, you mentioned failed states earlier, so let's circle back to that. And, and Darfur is often thought of as a humanitarian issue, an incident of genocide. Sure. Is it also related to climate change? It is. Climate change in and of itself isn't going to cause, in my view, uh, in instability, but it acts like a big magnifying glass over the fault lines that run along ethnic, political, religious lines, and uh, it makes uh, those stressors greater. It accelerates uh, the, uh, the the long slide into instability that can happen on itself or by itself due to other factors. And in the case of Darfur, the climate effect was simply a loss of crops for multiple years in the northern part of the, uh, the region that caused tribes that had lived there for many, many years and who were primarily uh, herders of, of animals, and that was their subsistence, to move south into, into areas in which the tribes were primarily farmers. 
So competition between herders and farmers, and uh, that uh, was one of the uh, causes of all of this uh, this strife that uh, already had some uh, ethnic uh, fault lines attached to that region. I believe that one of your reports looked at food, water, health, and shelter as sort of the areas. So that you right. talked about food and water there a little bit. Are there other areas that, where that will also, those stresses may lead to perhaps refugees or armed conflicts? Uh, another example I use uh, is Bangladesh. It sits on the Bay of Bengal to the uh, southeast of India. It used to be called East Pakistan. It's a Muslim country. And uh, there are millions of people that subsist on uh, coastal farming areas and coastal fisheries. From time to time, uh, literally over the centuries, they have been uh, inundated with uh, typhoons. In climate change, uh, I can foresee simply because of the increased temperature of the water in the South Pacific and in the Indian Ocean, a greater frequency and intensity of those uh, typhoons that hit mm-hmm. Bangladesh, greater tidal surge, I'm not even talking yet about, uh, about sea level rise, that could wipe out their, uh, their subsistence farming and their fisheries literally for months and years. That would cause literally millions of people to have a need to search for the basics of life. They would likely move to the northwest towards India, and uh, you have a recipe for some a great deal of unrest, if not uh, conflict, in that region. That's just one scenario. I'm using it uh, as an example, not as a predictor, but it's those kinds of scenarios that we need to take a look at. Now, some people might say that's unfortunate, but where's the U.S. strategic national interest in something like that? Well, another example in the region that goes right to the heart of U.S. uh, national interest would be Uh, We know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, instability over the years in Pakistan, a nuclear-armed nation. Mm -hmm. And Pakistan and India share uh, a long history of tensions in the region. And one of the areas of tension that has not manifested itself is fighting over water. But if you start seeing some of those great rivers of South Asia becoming uh, inundated floods in the rainy season because... You don't have that sponge effect of the, uh, the ice cap in the Himalayas or drying up or, or getting very, very small flow in the, uh, in the dry seasons. You have a recipe for another stressor, another reason for competition between two nuclear-armed countries. I'm not, once again, predicting anything. I'm not trying to say that climate change could uh, cause a uh, nuclear uh, exchange on, on South Asian peninsula. However... It's an example of how the stresses or potential stressors of climate change can, in fact, act as an accelerant or magnifier to existing tensions. There's another aspect to this, which is sort of uh, people who see this potential coming, trying to secure long-term supply of, of resources, whether it's water, right. oil, food, etc. And that has its own geopolitical dimension of China trying to make sure that they have uh, oil supply lines or water supply right. lines, and that might lead might that lead to uh, behavior or aggressions that we haven't seen before. It sure could, and and you rightly point out that intersection of competition for resources, especially water and oil, overlaid with uh, the potential effects of climate change. An example that exists right now, today, is we increasingly import um, additional amounts of oil from Nigeria and West Africa. 
And there is an insurgency that is going on in the Niger Delta, principally along uh, religious lines, but there's also this have-have-not divide. I've got uh, photos of uh, the Niger River where on one side you have some very, very uh, tough uh, poverty-driven slum areas. Right across the river, beautiful, pristine tank farms uh, containing oil ready to be exported. It is an economic have-have-not divide that we already, on a fairly regular basis, see attacks on that oil infrastructure and people that are trying to right that wrong, in their view, by the means that they have available to them. Thomas Friedman writes frequently about petro-dictators and and how the price of oil uh, uh, is related to tyranny and freedom in in the Middle East and other areas. So, um, But we've known about this for a long time, our addiction to oil supporting unsavory uh, regimes around the world. Is that really going to change, do you think? I think uh, if if we don't, uh, if we continue business as usual in terms of our addiction to not just oil uh, but all fossil fuels, We are going to see tensions rise. Competition in the marketplace could conceivably become conflict on the battlefield over these these increasingly expensive and increasingly precious supplies. So what we need to do is take a look at the three challenges of energy, climate change, and national security and say, how can we turn those challenges into an opportunity. And there, I think, is a good news story if we in the United States can get the right kinds of policies in place at the Washington level, at the Sacramento level, at the, at the county and, and city levels to really, really place a premium on clean energy technology, whether that's things that relate to energy efficiency or whether it is to increase our energy portfolio, the sources of energy that we need to expand beyond fossil fuels. Let's talk about that. Should, what role should the military play in, in doing that? Should the military uh, invest in R&D to, uh, to develop some of these technologies? The, mili- the Internet grew out of the military. Sure. Uh, why not uh, some clean energy things? It's a good example. Internet, uh, and I would add uh, GPS, initially developed by the Air Force and the Navy for uh, military operations, but uh, I had to find this place I was going to today, thank goodness, because I had my handheld uh, What did GPS. we do before that? <laughs> I know. I think we were lost or we planned ahead and uh, maybe there wasn't as much traffic on the roads. But you're right. DOD can and is playing a good role in developing technologies principally for military missions but potentially will have some good benefits to the wider civilian population and the wider civilian economy. That's what I would call spin-out technology whether it's the development of uh, algae-based jet fuel, for example, uh, or whether it's uh, something to do with energy efficiency. There's another aspect of this, and that is the military can uh, serve as a great customer, a market creator Mm -hmm. for some of the entrepreneurial uh, technologies that are out there in the civilian world, and we can spin in those technologies to help the military carry out their mission in a more effective way by greater energy efficiency and a broader choice beyond fossil fuel. Now, clearly, this isn't going to happen overnight. We didn't get addicted uh, in the military or in, uh, in the national sense to fossil fuel overnight, and we're not going to get off it overnight. The key, though, is to recognize the urgency and the seriousness of our growing addiction and to start taking those prudent measures I mentioned earlier now. 
Well, let's talk about some of the specifics. What, what is the Navy doing uh, in these areas, both on the R&D side and on the purchasing side? One thing, uh, there's nothing like uh, bold, visionary leadership goals. And the Secretary of the Navy, Secretary Mabus, former governor of Mississippi, in October 14th of this past year, laid down some very, very ambitious goals, but I think, and he thinks, obviously, achievable. He wants to cut the overall energy use of the Department of the Navy, that includes the Navy and the Marine Corps, by 20% by 2020. He wants to deploy a, a battle group uh, from in the Pacific Fleet uh, by 2016 that relies principally on nuclear power for the aircraft carrier and uh, bio-based fuels for all other operations, ships, aircraft, and helicopters. Quite an ambitious, uh, I think you mentioned 50% fuels used by car, ships, and aircraft from alternative sources, Um, half of all Navy installations to be energy net zero uh, by 2020, and uh, half of all shore-based needs by 2020 coming from renewables. Uh, That's pretty ambitious, much more ambitious than I think a lot of people know the military is doing. In some regards, uh, what we hear commercially, that that stuff is still experimental, not ready for the market. Uh, Do you think those goals are achievable? I think they are, Greg. And I say that because the technology to do those things already exists. It isn't something that we have to invent like uh, nuclear fusion or anything like that or Mm -hmm. hydrogen uh, cars with an infrastructure. The technologies for alternative energy and and energy efficiency are already there. It's a matter of scaling them up, getting them affordable, and when an organization as large as the Department of Defense, or in this case the Department of the Navy, sends that kind of a market signal, it really is helpful to entrepreneurs and large uh, organizational investors to start scaling those up, and it benefits everyone because the price point comes down. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're discussing energy security at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and my guest is retired Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. should also remind our audience that we have some question cards out there. We want to hear from you, so please uh, take a chance to write some questions, and one of my colleagues will come around and, uh, and collect those so we can include your questions in our uh, conversation tonight. So, Admiral, uh, is there a little competition going on among the Air Force and the, the Army and the Navy on who can be greener? I think this is one of those uh, areas where competition is a good thing. Uh, I think that there is, and uh, we've been talking briefly about the Department of the Navy's goals, but the Army and the Air Force have similar goals, as do all of the defense agencies, and these are uh, encouraged, if you will, by uh, the Secretary of Defense and, uh, and his staff. And I think that uh, we're going to see a beneficial effect from this There's been a deployment of renewable energy for a number of years in energy efficiency technologies for bases and stations in the United States. Uh, One of the ones that uh, President Obama visited uh, a while back was the large solar array at Nellis Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. The uh, Navy has had a geothermal electric producing capability at China Lake in the Mojave Desert for literally almost 25 or 30 years that has actually feeding electricity back into the grid and has been for a number of times. Helps to keep the price of electricity for the Navy at China Lake a lot lower. These are nice kind of uh, poster uh, projects, but are they really going to become systemic and, and, and uh, replace uh, so the incumbent technologies? I think they will, and they've uh, been very valuable in that 
the Department of Defense and the services have learned a lot from the deployment of these prototype systems. And they uh, are going to be smarter buyers, if you will, uh, in the future. And I think that because of the ambitious goals, like for the Navy that you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, we're going to see a much wider proliferation of these and consequently the economies of scale with that type of a market signal. And is the driver uh, doing the right thing or is it saving money or is it security or is it all of those? All of those. It it really is. I mean, very practically, uh, the um, military, for the most part, gets most of its power from the civilian grid and pays a bill for for that from the utility companies in the areas where bases are located. So uh, there's a dollars and cents reason for doing it. In a strategic sense, though, uh, the less we can be dependent on fossil fuel going forward as we look at things like the potential for peak oil or uh, tremendous divergence between the supply and the demand uh, for oil with a population of the world that's going to go over 7 billion uh, literally less than a year from now. You said the potential for peak oil. Uh, do you subscribe to the peak oil theory, which is quite a controversial topic? I subscribe to the fact that there will come a day uh, in the not-too-distant future in which uh, we are going to have more demand for oil than we have the ability to produce. And even before then, the uh, demand for oil is going to drive the price of oil up to uh, levels that uh, will be unprecedented. In fact, I think that probably within the next five to ten years, due to some acute emergencies, some weather-related perhaps, terrorism, uh, politically driven by OPEC perhaps, uh, or a closure of the, uh, the, the oil coming out of the Persian Gulf, we will see oil prices go to a level that will make us look back on $100 a barrel oil as the good old days. Some kind of really extreme external shock. A, a good example might be, I mentioned uh, Katrina earlier, who's to say that the sons and daughters of Katrina come roaring through the, the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and instead of coming ashore as a Category 3, as Katrina did, come ashore at even more powerful uh, levels with a higher storm surge of water that wipes out a good portion of our oil refining and storage capability in the Gulf of Mexico. That would drive oil above $150 a barrel very, very quickly. It might be for several months, but it would have reverberations through our whole economy. Another scenario that I worry about, even as the United States attempts to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon through various sanction regimes, who's to say that uh, a rogue element of the Iranian Republican Guards might come out, sink a tanker or two, put mines in the Straits of Hormuz and shut down 20% of the world's daily demand for oil that comes through that very narrow strait. The United States Navy and our allies would clearly be able to clear it, but it's going to take months, and that is going to send tremendous economic reverberations through the global economy that would make this recession look like the minor leagues. So if the U.S. were less dependent on foreign oil, we'd be somewhat insulated from these kinds of shocks that you're talking about? We, we would were... be somewhat insulated, but it, it's not just foreign oil because uh, all the oil that uh, – w- let me just say this. 
we cannot drill as the United States our way out of our dependence on oil. It just isn't sustainable. It will put off the inevitable. And every year that we uh, convince ourselves that it's okay to continue business as usual, that there are vast uh, resources or reservoirs of oil in Anwar, for example, in Alaska, or off the coast of uh, the Pacific and, uh, and Atlantic, we put off the inevitable time when we are going to have to get off oil. One of the great quotes I've heard is that was attributed to a former Saudi Arabian oil minister. He said, we must remember that the Stone Age did not end because we ran out of stones. Nor do we want the oil age to end because we run out of oil. The Stone Age end ended because better technology, bronze, iron, was available to do the jobs that previously only stone could do. We have the technology available today, and it is certainly going to be developed in dramatic ways, even going into the future, the first half of, of this century, that are better solutions than fossil fuels, that uh, have all the benefits of uh, cheap, affordable oil, which, uh, which are cheap, affordable energy, which oil has had up to this point, but without the downside. The, the sustainability is the key. We're discussing energy security at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and my guest is Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. Another quote is that uh, the com- personal computer didn't replace typewriters because we put a cap on uh, or, or trade on, on, uh, on typewriters. A question from the audience is, Admiral, in your opinion, is it oil or terrorism that our, keeps our country so engaged in the Middle East? Both, clearly. How, how are they linked? Well, uh, if you listen to uh, some of the, the terrorist organizations' rhetoric, um, they do not like the uh, significant presence of the United States in our allies in the, uh, in the Persian Gulf uh, area, in the, in the whole Middle East. And one of the reasons that we are there is to protect the lifeblood of the global economy called oil. It's not the only reason, certainly. There are other many, many other compelling national reasons, but the scale of our presence there, the length of time measured in decades that we've been there, and the cost in money and lives that this nation has expended to maintain that presence uh, is significant and a significant uh, cause of, uh, of problems. If the U.S. were to import less uh, oil from the Middle East, and actually, I mean, we should point out that we import import a pretty small amount from the Middle East. We're there protecting the global market and supply of our friends. Uh, Would the U.S. military expenditure and troop level in that part of the world go down? I don't think so. I think uh, oil is what they call a fungible commodity. And uh, you can't really, uh, I suppose you could do some DNA testing of a barrel of oil and decide where it came from. But the point is that uh, the global economy of which the United States is the most significant part, is going to demand some form of energy. And to the extent that we continue to rely on oil, it will continue to come from unstable regimes, many of them unfriendly to the United States' objectives. And that's where some people, including uh, General Wesley Clark, say corn and coal. They're American. And Boone Pickens, who was our guest last year, they're American. Uh, so where do you come down on, on corn ethanol and coal as, as power sources? I would say it depends. As I mentioned, energy, security, climate change, and national security are all inextricably linked. 
And because of that, you need to think about them comprehensively. When you try to develop a solution to one, you have to think through the effects, positive and negative, on the others. So in the case of uh, corn ethanol, depending on where it is grown and produced, how much carbon is expended or greenhouse gases from field to fuel tank and uh, other factors, it could be that uh, certain forms of ethanol actually have more greenhouse gas production than uh, oil that we get out of the ground. In the case of coal, we know that uh, the carbon dioxide or the greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired plants is enormous. So until we develop technology that we can affordably capture and and sequester uh, the uh, the carbon from coal far, coal uh, power plants, for example, uh, it's probably not the way to go. I guess I'd say this: one of the uh, members of the military advisory board said, "You know." In thinking about our future energy and climate change posture in the United States, there really is no silver bullet, but there's some silver buckshot. And what we've got to do is evaluate the the, uh, attributes, the costs, the benefits, and the risks of each element of that potential future portfolio, whether it's corn ethanol, ethanol from other sources, algae-based oil, uh, energy from the sun, from the wind, from geothermal, We have to evaluate those on a level playing field with consistent objectives, consistent assumptions, and uh, not pick the winners, but let the market pick the winners. Now, perhaps a hierarchical structure like the U.S. military could be so analytical and and fact-based. Congress is is less fact-based and has large lobbies and states that rely on on corn and and coal. And we have a question from the audience that says that while climate change might be broadly accepted in the defense community, that's not necessarily true in the policy community. So to get into the political realm, how do you see these things... translating into reality via our political process? I would say that uh, if there are folks out there, whether they're uh, American citizens or elected officials, that don't want to, for whatever reason, believe in climate change, then don't. But think about the energy security aspects. And the fact of the matter is, if we have the right kind of energy strategy, energy policy for this country... Being mindful of the potential effects of climate change, more or less as an insurance policy, we are going to go more than 90% of the way where we need to go to address climate change directly. So for a whole variety of reasons, economic security, avoiding the uh, price volatility and inexorable climb of the cost of fossil fuel, for uh, the national security reasons economically, militarily, diplomatically, we need to be taking actions. It isn't just about climate change. And one of the ways to do that is to put a price on carbon. A lot of uh, companies say, put a price on carbon, the marketplace will take care of it. Uh, And that would advance a lot of the developments you're talking about. How do you think we should put a price on carbon? Uh, I'm not a a policy expert per se, uh, and uh, I would agree that we need to put a price on carbon. We're already paying it. I mean, it is costing us in uh, the quality of, uh, of the environment right now, certainly locally and regionally, in our, you can see the downstream effects of, uh, of coal-fired plants, for example. Uh, we mentioned the price that we're paying to maintain a military force in the Middle East and oil-producing areas. Those are real dollars, and we need to uh, basically 
say we are already paying them let's put it in carbon in terms of carbon and that will level the playing field a great deal in uh, how we can get the entrepreneurial technologies out there and scaled up and deployed now, a lot of commercial activity, power plants, and investment is waiting for that price on carbon. And it sounds like the military is not waiting for a price on carbon. They're just doing it. Is that correct, that their, their goals and, and plans are independent of a price on carbon? That's right. And, and I would say to, uh, uh, to folks, whether they're elected officials or citizens, why is the Department of Defense worried about carbon? And why is the National Academy of Sciences And why is every single engineering and scientific society across America signed up to this idea of we've got to worry about carbon because it has an adverse effect on our climate? Can't define precisely what that is, but it sure makes good common American sense to uh, do something about it before our backs are against the wall and we don't have as many options as we have today. And the price of those options is not going to get any cheaper. Question from the audience is, what is one uh, the most important action the Obama administration could take to forward the agenda you have enunciated? I think we've seen a lot of uh, good actions already. Uh, certainly, uh, the, uh, the Recovery Act uh, had uh, funds that is devoted, R&D funds, to the uh, Department of, the, of Energy and other uh, Department of, of Defense to a certain extent, and other federal agencies that helps to... Uh, to develop and deploy some of the technologies that we need for this this clean energy technology. I think the uh, executive order mandating uh, specific reductions in greenhouse gas and energy consumption throughout the federal government mm-hmm. and by the companies that supply or are vendors to, to uh, federal uh, government departments and agencies go a long way. I think the acceleration by four years of the implementation of the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards for cars and light trucks, will save enormous amounts of, uh, of money and fuel for this country over time. They are going to be implemented in 2016, uh, four years earlier than the original law that said it was going to uh, be 2020 before we could do that. And that was with the uh, full knowledge and support of environmental groups automobile manufacturers, and others who have a vested interest in trying to increase the efficiency of our transportation fleet. Dennis McGinn is retired Vice Admiral of the U.S. Navy. He's our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Another question from the audience is about China, both as a, a source of uh, technology innovation a, and whether it's a, a partner or, or a competitor or a threat when we look at this energy future. I think... Uh, we tend sometimes to think only competitively of China, whether it's in the economic or military dimensions. But I think if the more we learn about the challenges that are facing China related to climate change and energy security, the more we see the potential for partnership. Because uh, if I had to make a choice, do I want to keep America's problems as America's problems or trade them for China's, I'd keep America's problems every time. Chinese are facing some significant uh, challenges, and by working together and sometimes in a competitive way in the, uh, in the technology arena, in the economic arena, I think that we could lead. What I would like to see happen, though, is a lot less ambiguity by both the United States and China in setting 
a price on carbon in some way that makes sense to do so, in a way that does not uh, uh, cause any significant ripples in the global economy or the economies of those two great nations, and in a way that uh, basically starts to open up the uh, great opportunities that are available for us in creating this uh, clean energy revolution. You used to command the U.S. Navy's third fleet in the eastern Pacific. There's been a lot of talk about China's development of a blue water navy, uh, and certainly if China gets more hungry to protect uh, supply lines, etc. Do you see them and China's uh, resource hunger as a, as a military challenge to the United States? Uh, it could be, and, and certainly uh, it's the, uh, the mission of the United States to make sure that the national security community and the armed services to plan for those contingencies. Basically, it's a form of prepare for the worst and, and work towards the best. But uh, I think that uh, if we got to the point where we were actually in a shooting war with not just China but any nation over uh, oil, we would have fundamentally failed to uh, open our eyes today and put into place the national and international policies that would prevent that type of uh, desperate situation. The Arctic also was part of your purview. Uh, now, due to the, the melting ice cap, a lot of resources, gas and oil, are suddenly are gradually becoming accessible uh, to the Russians and others. Do you think there will be some resource skirmishes in the Arctic? I don't think so. Uh, I was uh, in London uh, last month, and I had the opportunity to speak with the, uh, the chief of naval operations of the Danish Navy. And he has done a tremendous amount of, of uh, study, and as you may know, uh, Greenland is, uh, is part of, uh, of Denmark, and so they are a key uh, member of the Arctic nations, including Canada, of course, the United States, Soviet Union, and uh, Norway. And these nations, I think, are committed, I'm, I'm fairly certain are committed, to uh, updating the protocols and the procedures and the, the uh, treaty aspects in how you regulate the, um, the mineral resources, the fishing resources, in the environment of the Arctic. And so you think they'll work it out amicably without I, any... I, that's that's my, my, my sense, yes. You can never uh, have 100% certainty, though. Sure, that either. Uh, another question from the audience is about the cost of these technologies and these investments and the cost of the recommendations from your group. Often we hear that this, these technologies cost more. Maybe the military can afford to make these investments up front. I think that's one of the advantages of uh, the military being an early adopter, fairly high risk tolerance for new technology if it can be proven that it has an advantage in increasing military mission effectiveness. So that can create the market demand that can be expanded as, uh, as the, uh, the technology is, uh, is deployed, as the prices come down per unit of kilowatt hour or gallon of uh, alternative uh, bio-based fuel. As uh, the U.S. government and the military did with transistors and some other technologies exactly, that, that sure. sort of predated uh, Silicon, Silicon Valley here. Uh, same thing for biofuels, being able to sort of to buy down the price or, or take some of the risks that... Uh, yeah, I, I think so, Greg. Uh, I think, though, there are, there's a tremendous uh, opportunity not just for the U.S. military but for the, the largest user of jet fuel, commercial aviation, uh, I think there's a lot that uh, can be done. Um, I think uh, the Virgin Group, uh, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin mm -hmm. America, have uh, uh, looked at some of the technologies related to, uh, to bio-based fuel. Interestingly, uh, 
of all uh, all companies, ExxonMobil spent 600 or invested 600 million dollars last year in a San Diego-based consortium of algae-producing companies or algae technologies. The question is, uh, how much can uh, that scale up? Here's a major producer of fossil fuel that is looking, I believe, to the future and saying, we need to expand our our feedstock, if you will, of crude oil. And algae fuel in particular, like uh, many other uh, bio-based fuels like camelina oil, for example, can be actually put through existing refineries and broken down into every one of the petroleum products that we get from crude oil today. We're eliminating the, the middle millions of years of, uh, of pressure on that algae that uh, is now oil today. And eliminating the huge capital requirements of rebuilding, retooling the refineries, exactly. et cetera, which I think is a large right. uh, resistance among oil companies. They've got so much sunk capital in those things, sure. they can't just switch that out. And that's, a real, that. I think, a real driver in, in our energy choices in that to the extent that you can use the existing infrastructure with modifications, that's a real advantage. But we shouldn't just limit our thinking in creating this future energy portfolio to our existing infrastructure. We need to do think about other ways that we can do it, even if we have to build some infrastructure. And one way we haven't touched on yet is hydrogen. So there's, hydrogen has its cheerleaders and, and its deniers. Right. Uh, uh, our governor in California happens to be one of the cheerleaders, and, and, uh, and yet we have, is that part of the, the mix that the military is looking at? Uh, I think it is, but I think it's a little bit longer range. Uh, the biggest challenge, uh, there's a reason why hydrogen uh, has an atomic number one on the periodic chart, and that's because it's a very, very light gas, the lightest gas. And so the challenge with hydrogen is to get it into a form, into a, a so-called energy density through compression or liquefaction or something like that that can put the hydrogen energy in places where we want it, especially if we're going to use it for mobile applications like vehicles. And again, there's, there's also huge infrastructure requirements uh, for, for, for hydrogen. A- another question from the audience is about Africa. The weekly, we read about increased foreign investment in Africa, both for foreign oil, as in today's announcement of another uh, corporate acquisition from China. So what are the U.S. interests with regard to Africa and, and this energy scenario? Not necessarily driven uh, by, uh, by energy, but uh, for a whole variety of national security reasons. Uh, last year, the United States established uh, what we call a combatant command, which is African, Africa Command. Uh, previously, it was uh, in the area of responsibility of the European Command, and uh, there's uh, sufficient uh, cause for the United States' national security efforts to be more focused in Africa, whether it's from what we call the low end of the mission scale, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, on up through uh, regional conflict, to have that, to, to continue to build that knowledge of Africa and uh, to, uh, to put in place the kinds of relationships with African nations that will help to stave off the worst of those scenarios. If there are widespread droughts, famine, uh, natural disasters, oftentimes it's the Marines that are, that are called upon. Uh, do you think that we'll see the Marines deployed increasingly in these kinds of humanitarian missions that might change the, the, the balance of their missions? I think that's a key concern, and it's one we talked a lot about when we talked about uh, climate change and national security. It is the wonderful young men and women in uniform that this nation, uh, that represent the nation's best, that are called upon to go out there for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. We just saw it 
uh, at large scale in Haiti. We saw it in the wake of the tsunami several years ago in the Indian Ocean. We see it time and again, even in our own nation. In the wake of Katrina, the heavy lifting was done by the United States Coast Guard, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And that is a real, real concern. So looking at uh, the future for humanitarian assistance, disaster relief scenarios driven by Mother Nature, driven by uh, natural uh, events like hurricanes, typhoons, droughts, or what have you, I see increased frequency, increased duration, and increased intensity, and we need to uh, prepare for that, and that would go to the, uh, the adaptation. Adaptation by uh, the kinds of, uh, of equipment and capabilities we have, the kinds of capacity to respond to these types of uh, disasters, and importantly, uh, in working with, uh, with the nations that are likely to be most affected to help them to help themselves in terms of uh, adaptation to the effects of climate change. We've seen that stretched recently with two, uh, her- two earthquakes happening in the world right. uh, so, so, so close together. Uh, so what you're, it sounds what you're saying is that the Marines will be changing, the, the, see them increasingly deployed to those kinds of areas doing that kind of work. And it, it isn't just the Marines, as, as you know. It's all of the, uh, the military services. The unique characteristics or capabilities that the U.S. military has are sea lift, air lift, uh, local uh, lift in terms of helicopters, tremendous amount of uh, water purification capability, medical supplies, food. And these are the things that are in absolutely critical demand anytime you have a major humanitarian assistance disaster relief scenario. And it sounds like uh, nation building. Well, it is, in a sense. Uh, in the humanitarian assistance disaster relief, it's reactive. And I think that the Department of uh, Defense and the Department of State are starting to uh, develop uh, and have been for some time the protocols for being more proactive to take a look at the nations most likely to be affected by the effects of climate change and the possible instability and work with those nations, work with uh, USAID, work with uh, even uh, Commerce, Department of Energy, other nations, the UN World Food Program, and develop some resiliency for those nations so that uh, we don't just wait around for things to happen and then have to react at great cost in uh, dollars and, more importantly, in human life. Yeah. Dennis McGinn is retired vice admiral of the U.S. Navy. We're discussing energy security at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Another uh, question from the audience uh, it touches on adaptation. You mentioned uh, adaptation. This is particularly which Navy and U.S. military facilities will be challenged or threatened by rising sea uh, levels. We've already seen uh, right. some Navy bases hit by hurricanes, et cetera. So where are we at risk that way? Well, um, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of naval facilities are located on the water. Funny how and, that, yeah. And I, th- and I think that uh, if we are to be affected potentially by uh, potential sea level rise or by uh, uh, tidal surges associated with, uh, with hurricanes in the United States or Western Hemisphere, uh, we need to be concerned about our infrastructure. Now, we're not uh, at a point where we have to embark on a huge uh, infrastructure uh, program to, you know, create barriers or, or raise uh, the level of bases or, or what have you or the, or the systems that, uh, that uh, they must rely on. But I think uh, the planning process has started, playing what if, when you have to replace infrastructure, mm-hmm. you should be mm-hmm. thinking that 
things are going to be different during the 40, 50, 60 years of the life of that infrastructure, whether it's a, a pier alongside uh, a naval station or a runway alongside, uh, uh, located on a low-lying island. Though there are some places in the Pacific Islands, Maldives, etc., where they say that their nations are, are disappearing. Uh, are there any bases over there that, that are at risk? One that comes to mind is uh, the British Indian Ocean Territory of Diego Garcia. For uh, more than 30 years, uh, the United States and uh, other allies have used this critical piece of real estate. It's a little dot on a map uh, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, but it's really crucial for uh, strategic purposes for access to any crisis in the Middle East. And so uh, it doesn't have a lot of freeboard, uh, but... Uh, Freeboard being being the amount of uh, of, of uh, land between uh, the top of the water and and the, the top of the land, so uh, we need to be considered. Uh, we need to be considering uh, what is happening there and what would it be uh, over decades. And I'm not predicting next year or in the, in the next decade or even 20 years, but towards the mid part of the century, if some of the potential scenarios for sea level rise manifest themselves. Uh, what would we do? Would we go to different places or for support, or would we try to buttress up or adapt uh, that particular strategic facility to withstand a higher sea level rise? Now, it's interesting because military planners can plan those sorts of things and kind of know during, for the younger ones, th- during their career, they may see those things right. happen, whereas in our political process, no politicians in office now are going to have to worry about that. So at what point do you actually start then to, you've been a, spent part of your career planning, at what point do you then start to actualize those plans and start building? When do you start putting levees around Diego sure. Garcia? Well, it's nothing like a crisis to focus your attention. And unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately in a democracy, uh, we tend to react to uh, crises better than uh, being proactive and looking ahead. I would like, through uh, informed conversations like we are having, Greg, to disprove uh, Sir Winston Churchill. He once said that America will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And what I would like to see in this related set of challenges of climate change, energy security, and national security is to prove uh, Sir Winston wrong and to take the actions now and do the right thing now before we've tried everything else. Do you think that the U.S. political population has an appetite for either sacrifice or additional cost to, do, to take short-term uh, right. consequences for long-term gain? We have a very short-term mentality in this country. We, we do. And I do think that we've got the kinds of visionary leaders uh, that uh, can, in fact, create the mandates, the policy framework that will be stable, visionary, and into which the American entrepreneurial spirit, the spirit of innovation, the capital, we are the richest nation on, on the earth, bar none, even in these economic hard times. And we are doing very, very well. We would do well to leverage our great uh, academic institutions, our great technology, our infrastructure, and our capital to address these problems and to create opportunities. Not sacrifice, but better prosperity and better security. Would you care to name some of those visionary leaders, and are any of them holding political office? (laughs) Sure. I mean, uh, I'm not uh, endorsing any particular approach that's being discussed on on Capitol Hill, but a couple of names that come to mind 
our uh, Senator John Kerry, the uh, chairman of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, his uh, ranking minority, uh, Senator Dick Lugar, who was responsible for the Nunn-Lugar bipartisan national security-related uh, Nunn-Lugar Act uh, from uh, the 90s. It took a lot of, of dangerous nuclear material uh, off, the, uh, off the world's market when uh, the former Soviet Union came apart. Our CEO used to uh, be involved with that here. I, and, I, and I think that uh, a guy like uh, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, have all been working across the aisle to try to forge uh, the kind of energy policy, climate policy, that uh, addresses the challenges, but in my mind, once again, really creates the opportunities for America. Every day that goes by, uh, we're missing an opportunity to get on with this uh, clean energy technology revolution. I would, I would really hate to see us um, trade our dependence on imported oil for a dependence on imported clean energy technology coming from China, India, or Europe because we did not have the right policy framework. And I think this is becoming pretty clear in Congress, and I think that uh, there are some visionary leaders that can get something through. Like most things, uh, the, the bill once passed will probably have something for everybody to hate about it. But uh, collectively, mm -hmm. it will be the right kind of thing for America if it reduces our dependence on fossil fuel and if it reduces uh, this spewing into the atmosphere of greenhouse gases, creating potential uh, problems down the road for future generations. And I think that uh, that's the kind of uh, policy regime that the uh, Congress is working on, and I'd like to see them do it uh, right away. One dimension of this we haven't touched on yet is, is the job and skill dimension. Uh, there's a debate in California about whether these things are good for the economy or not good for the economy. Uh, it, it occurred to me with all these initiatives in the military, they must either be looking for or developing all sorts of clean tech skills uh, that I'm just wondering how that's affecting uh, the career path of people in the services and might affect people coming out of the services sure. who then have these, these clean tech skills that they got in the military. Uh, I think uh, the, the skill set for clean tech uh, doesn't necessarily have to have uh, rested on working with clean tech before. I mean, electricity, electricians, um, uh, hydraulics uh, that uh, would supply a, some sort of a, a new type of, uh, of a geothermal plant, for example. The skill sets are already there, not just in the military, but across America. It's a matter of redirecting them. I've seen a couple of side-by-side -side comparisons. Business as usual, continued reliance on fossil fuel, and the number of jobs that could likely be created if we tried to ramp up just our fossil fuel industry versus the jobs that can be created, high-quality, high-paying, technically-oriented jobs in clean technology. And clean technology wins by a factor of four or five in terms of a benefit to the economy and uh, certainly the creation of uh, really good jobs. I'd like to uh, wrap it up here and ask you sort of a, a personal question. You have some family here. You have, I believe, your, your son and daughter-in-law and your granddaughter are, are here today. So as we talk about these long-range planning things, are you hopeful about the world that they will inherit and they will grow I in? sure am. And I think about Madeline Maxine McGinn every time uh, I uh, think about our future. She and uh, her generation and, uh, and the generation that they will produce are going to be living with the vision that we exercise today or the lack of vision and its negative consequences. And I think that this country 
which has done so many good things over uh, our history, can rise to this level of challenge and make it a much better world, much more prosperous, and much more secure if we do the right thing. As you mentioned, we mentioned Leon Panetta here earlier. He said here that we either govern by crisis or by leadership. Let's hope that we govern by leadership more than crisis. Our thanks to Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn for his comments here today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for coming. We're adjourned. Thank you, Greg.